In April of 1865, the Civil War had all but ended. Confederate General Robert E. Lee was preparing to formally surrender the bulk of the Confederate Army to Ulysses S. Grant. Union forces were advancing into the southern states, reclaiming the failed nation for the United States of America. Confederate President Jefferson Davis received word that a Union battalion was en route to capture the Confederate capital city of Richmond, Virginia. As the city burned, Davis fled with the members of his cabinet. The group took with them a massive cache of gold, reportedly all that was left of the Confederate treasury. The treasure is likely valued at millions of dollars in today's currency, though the exact value has been debated by historians. But what is known is this. When Davis and the rest of his cabinet were captured in May of 1865, the treasure that they had on them was seized and sent north. It never reached its destination. There are numerous rumors as to where all that treasure ended up. Over the past 150 years, treasure hunters and historians have looked all over the United States for the missing gold. And yet, after all this time, the Confederate gold has eluded all efforts to find it. It's a true American treasure hunt. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone on the Parcast Network. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can find previous episodes as well as Parcast's other podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. In this episode, we're looking into the Confederate gold that reportedly vanished in 1865 as the remnants of the Confederate government tried to avoid capture. This treasure is commonly referred to as Confederate gold. However, this treasure was more of a myriad of precious metals. In addition to gold, the cash also included Mexican silver dollars and valuable jewelry. However, for consistency's sake, We'll refer to the treasure as the Confederate gold for the duration of this episode. The treasure has become a recurring plot device in adventure novels and films. The myth of this Confederate gold has long overshadowed the real historical story. In this episode, we're going to examine the historical events that led Jefferson Davis to flee Richmond with the treasure on that fateful night in 1865. Then, we'll examine the most likely theories as to where the treasure ended up. As is the case with most missing treasure, there are dozens of reported locations where the gold is suspected to have been hidden. For this episode, 
we're looking at the possibilities that are most supported by historical facts. The first theory is that the bulk of the treasure was stolen by outlaws, most likely deserters from the Confederate Army, who buried the gold somewhere in the southern United States. The second theory is that the gold was actually stolen by Union troops who were tasked with transporting it back to Washington, D.C. Instead, the soldiers smuggled the gold north all the way to Lake Michigan, where it sunk and still remains to this day. Our third theory is that there is no hidden treasure. The legend grew out of rumors and hearsay surrounding the end of the Confederacy. And that story has persisted to this day, thanks to conspiracy theories and sensationalism. Given the hindsight of history, it can be easy to forget how complicated the Civil War actually was. It's not a stretch to say that the Confederate States of America were doomed from the start. It's probably a good thing that seceding from the United States to form a separate nation is pretty hard to do. Even after the southern states seceded, the remaining United States were a military and economic force to be reckoned with. There were a number of issues that led to the Civil War, including economics, states' rights against the federal government, and the enmity between the northern and southern states, just to name a few. But the single main cause of the war was slavery. There were only 33 ratified states in 1860. As the United States spread across the western frontier, the U.S. Congress ran into a problem. Abolitionism, the movement to abolish slavery, had been present in America since the country was founded in 1776. For the entirety of the country's history, the southern states had effectively banded together in Congress to vote down any movement to end slavery on a national level. But the southern leaders couldn't stop individual states from ending slavery within their own borders. Every new state that entered the Union got to choose whether it would be a free state or a slave state. By the 1840s, there was a chance that the anti-slavery congressmen might outnumber the pro-slavery ones. If that happened, the South might not have been able to stop a national abolition of slavery. The South responded by forcing protection measures, including legislation which stated that for every free state admitted to the Union, a corresponding slave state must also be admitted so that the balance was maintained. But by 1860, compromise between the two sides seemed like an impossible dream. With the 1860 election, it was becoming painfully clear that the issue of slavery was not going to go away peacefully. Although Abraham Lincoln did not seek to abolish slavery in the South as part of his political platform, he did want to restrict its spread to new states, and the Southern leadership made it clear that they would vote to secede if Lincoln was elected. The question of secession was complicated. At face value, a single state breaking free of the United States was illegal and unconstitutional. However, considering that the original 13 colonies broke free from Britain to rebel against an oppressive regime, well, the southern states felt that they were just honoring history. Lincoln was elected, and the southern states, led by South Carolina, voted to secede beginning in December of 1860. By March of 1861, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, and Alabama officially formed the Confederate States of America. 
The war officially began with the Battle of Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861. The first of many vital tasks for the new nation was to establish leadership. Shortly after the formation of the Confederacy, former Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis was elected as the country's first president. He would also be the nation's only president. Davis was a popular choice in 1861 because of his pro-slavery politics and his stance on states' rights. However, his appointment would ultimately do more harm than good. His blunders, particularly in the matters of military and economic decisions, would contribute to the Confederacy's downfall. That isn't to say that the rogue nation's quick demise was entirely Davis's fault. The reality is that there was no realistic chance the Confederacy would win the war in a head-on military battle. War is expensive and complicated, especially when you're also trying to establish a new country. The Confederacy simply lacked the necessary manpower, leadership, and finances to combat the more organized Union forces. Before the Confederacy was even one year old, Davis was forced to declare martial law and enforce a draft of all able-bodied men to fight in the war. Though the Confederacy boasted some of the more accomplished military officers in the United States at the time, it was lacking for infantrymen. The Confederate government was no more organized. Given that the rogue nation was formed in large part because state leaders didn't want to submit to a federal government, Davis had trouble commanding his own cabinet. This is significant mostly because it meant that the Confederacy never got its finances into decent shape. Previously, the southern states had largely relied on farming and the production of raw resources like cotton as a benchmark of their economy. These resources had to be sent north, where the factories were, in order to be turned into useful materials. Since the South was now at war with the North, they no longer had access to the industrial facilities that were required to produce weapons and war supplies. From the outset, the Confederacy was outgunned. Additionally, they had few options for trading. Most nations didn't recognize the legitimacy of the Confederacy, and thus the newly established Confederate currency was useless almost everywhere. As such, the Confederacy did everything it could to consolidate more universal currencies such as gold and silver. In the later years of the war, the Confederate government even confiscated jewelry and other valuables in order to combat its growing financial crisis. This was all held in the Confederate capital city of Richmond, Virginia. All of these efforts to bolster the Confederate States of America were futile. As we said, the southern states had little chance against the more organized, well-supplied Union Army. This is where the Confederacy was in 1865. Outmanned, poorly supplied, and in possession of a rapidly dwindling supply of money as Union forces scored victory after victory. Jefferson Davis was attending church on April 2, 1865, when he received word from General Robert E. Lee. The message was simple. Richmond must be evacuated, and the Confederate government must flee if the nation was to survive the night. Davis ordered Confederate troops to set Richmond ablaze so that the advancing Union army would not be able to make use of any supplies they found within the city. Then, he ordered the full contents of the treasury loaded onto train carts in preparation for departure. We should state here that the exact amount and value of this treasure has long been disputed. 
Naturally, it's impossible to confirm since the treasure has yet to be found. But the general account states that the bulk of the treasure consisted of gold, silver, and bullion, valued at around $500,000. Additionally, there were millions of dollars in Confederate currency, though, as we've said, it was generally useless. Finally, the troops loaded up the seized assets from a number of Richmond's private banks, which added another $450,000 of value. The treasure was split up a number of times during the journey, and we can't account for every individual crate or barrel that might have been misplaced by Confederate soldiers. But we can track the journey of the bulk of the gold to a point. Jefferson's initial plan had been to flee south and use the funds from the treasure to establish a new base to continue the war effort. However, the plan quickly unraveled. The convoy reached the end of the train line in Danville, Virginia, and the party was forced to carry what they could on horseback. Before, the treasure had been consolidated to a single train car, but now it was being spread out among the numerous men, horses, and mules. Additionally, the soldiers with Jefferson were growing restless. They hadn't been paid, and as a Union victory seemed more and more inevitable, they started to grumble about whether what they were doing was really worth it. The Confederate leaders were forced to use part of the treasure to pay for their own military detail. Jefferson eventually split the treasure up. The money taken from the Richmond banks was placed in a vault in the city. The rest of the Treasury money was assigned to Confederate Secretary of War John Breckinridge. Most of the Confederate cabinet was captured in the city of Washington, Georgia, in May of 1865. Davis was captured just days later. Union soldiers recovered the Richmond bank money, but the rest of the treasure was missing. There are two main reasons that it's so difficult to track what happened to all of this treasure. The first is that the treasure was large, but easily split up into small containers. The treasure dwindled and fractured as it moved south, and thus, it became harder and harder to track where every single cent ended up. The second, more concrete reason is that there's not a lot of hard documentation from this particular period. In early May of 1865, the Confederate cabinet burned most of their government documents, which included treasury slips. The goal in doing this was to prevent Union troops from finding out about the treasure that Jefferson Davis had sent away. Unfortunately, it also makes it hard for modern historians to find out what really happened to the mounds of gold that, for all we know, could still be out there somewhere waiting to be discovered. We'll dive into the main theories as to what happened to the Confederate gold right after this. Now, back to the story. In 1865, a large sum of gold and precious metals was sent south from Richmond, Virginia, in an effort to preserve the Confederate States of America. When the caravan was captured along with most of the Confederate cabinet, a large chunk of the gold was missing. One thing to note about our first two theories is that they're not mutually exclusive. Since we know the treasure was likely split up among various parties, it's possible that what remains of the gold is in separate locations across the United States. Recall that the treasure which set out from Richmond, Virginia, was made of two distinct sums. The approximately $500,000 of gold, silver, and jewelry 
and an additional $450,000 in gold and silver coins seized from the private banks of Richmond. This may surprise you. When most people discuss Confederate gold, they're actually referring to the money from the Richmond banks. We'll discuss the fate of the actual Confederate treasure soon, but our first theory contends that a large sum of the treasure was buried somewhere in Georgia by robbers who stole the gold from the Union forces that were returning north. Here's what we do know as far as our first theory is concerned. On May 4, 1865, Jefferson Davis signed the order that officially dissolved the Confederate States of America. The next day, Union troops captured the city and the gold and silver from the Richmond banks. Now, there was some debate among the Union leaders as to what to do with the 450000 taken from the Richmond banks. The owners of the banks had been complicit with the Confederacy, after all. Ultimately, the decision was made that the money should be returned. On May 24, 1865, a small contingent of Union soldiers guiding five wagons loaded with bank assets departed Georgia for Richmond. If you've ever seen a Western movie, you can guess what happened next. The caravan was hit in the middle of the night by a gang of robbers who more likely than not had been informed of the treasure. The thieves made off with everything they could carry, over $290,000 worth of treasure in all. The remaining funds did make it to Richmond, but the now ex-Confederate leaders there weren't about to let some deserters make off like bandits. The money from the Richmond banks would prove useful to the Southern Reconstruction. So, General Edward Alexander put together a posse and went after the thieves. When all was said and done, dozens of men were dead, and Alexander's outfit had recovered about $110,000, leaving $180,000 still unaccounted for. That money, which would amount to over $3 million today, has never been found. American forces made efforts during the Reconstruction to recover the stolen funds, but nothing ever came of them. What's most likely is that the thieves spent the remainder of the stolen gold in such a way that didn't draw attention. The southern United States was in bad shape following the Civil War, so it's entirely plausible that the men just kept their heads down and spent a little bit at a time until the loot was all gone. However, cultural interest in the gold has led to additional theories that, while not exactly likely, do warrant examination. The best example of this is the 1975 book, Snow White Sands by Martha Mizell Puckett. The book is a history of Georgia through the Civil War, and one of its most notable chapters concerns the missing Confederate gold. Puckett points to the case of Sylvester Mumford, a wealthy Georgia merchant who allegedly was present at Jefferson Davis's final cabinet meeting. Mumford, a diehard Confederate loyalist, had been part of the plan to rob the Union caravan and retake the Richmond bank funds. After recovering the money, Mumford put it to work. Georgia was a farming state, and much of its fertile farmland had been destroyed by Union forces during the war. Mumford used the stolen treasure to order vast amounts of corn seed from South America in order to help restart Georgia's farming economy. When Mumford died, his daughter used her large inheritance to open an orphanage and provide scholarships for children in need. Much of the evidence of Mumford's involvement in the story is that, by all accounts, his own plantations had been destroyed during the war 
and few historians can account for his maintained wealth during and after the conflict. That said, there's not much here in terms of hard proof besides the notable coincidence. Mumford could be the embodiment of the theory that the gold simply never left Georgia. And that's entirely possible. But according to our second theory, the gold did make it out of the South to the northernmost reaches of the United States. Our second theory concerns what is likely the most popular belief regarding the missing Confederate gold. It states that a big part of the treasure was smuggled to Michigan. While crossing Lake Michigan into Canada, a boxcar containing the treasure was dropped overboard, and the gold is still at the bottom of the lake. The legend of the missing Confederate gold has seen a resurgence of public interest in recent years. This is largely due to a documentary series that aired on the History Channel in early 2018. It was titled The Curse of the Civil War Gold, and it follows Marty Lagina and his team's search for Confederate gold at the bottom of Lake Michigan. So how on earth could Confederate gold make it from Georgia to Michigan without anyone knowing about it? Recall that Union troops were tasked with transporting the Richmond bank funds back north to Richmond. According to this story, there was more than one northern outfit tasked with transporting the captured money. The documentary series states that this gold was taken from Jefferson Davis when he was captured on May 10, 1865. As we've said, it's hard to keep track of the differing amounts of money that the Confederacy made off with. While we have a general guess as to how much money made up the initial amount of the treasure, it's entirely possible that the numbers were fabricated in order to hide some of the treasure. We're saying that in any theory, it's nearly impossible to state how much treasure there actually was or where it came from. But this particular theory maintains that a group of Union soldiers, all from Michigan, found a cache of Confederate gold among Jefferson Davis's personal effects and conspired to smuggle it north to keep for themselves. The men were attempting to move the gold in a boxcar across Lake Michigan to smuggle into Canada. The weather was bad. The crew were forced to dump the boxcar overboard in order to save the ship from sinking. That treasure has remained at the bottom of Lake Michigan ever since. A number of recent finds seem to help corroborate this story. The first confirmation is a deathbed confession made to the grandfather of one Kevin Dykstra, a treasure hunter featured in the History Channel docuseries. The confession came from George Alexander Abbott, a lighthouse keeper who, in 1921, admitted to being one of the Union soldiers who stole the gold and smuggled it to Michigan. He stated that the gold was lost in Lake Michigan and that it's still there. The words of one man almost a hundred years ago might not seem like much to go on, but as the story was passed down, it started to generate interest in Lake Michigan as a potential site of missing treasure. Ultimately, the documentary series doesn't end with the discovery of the long-lost gold. If the treasure really is down there, it makes for a fantastic story. But there's a few notable discrepancies in this theory. 
The curse of the Civil War gold claims that the treasure hidden at the bottom of Lake Michigan was approximately two million in gold bullion or bars. This would make the Lake Michigan treasure by far the largest amount of gold to be associated with the Confederate treasure that left Richmond. The accounts we've read put the Confederate gold at around $500,000, plus the additional 450,000 in Richmond bank funds. So for this theory to be true, it would mean that the single amount stolen by the Michigan Union troops was worth double that of the entire rest of the total treasure. This account is further contradicted by numerous sources that state Jefferson Davis took only $35,000 worth of gold for himself when he fled Georgia. Still, Jefferson Davis was not a good person. It's certainly possible he withheld a huge sum of treasure for himself before he abandoned his cabinet and his army to save his own life. As we've said, there are enough discrepancies in this story to make any claim as to the real value of the treasure dubious at best. Given that there's not much else in terms of proof that the gold ever made it to Michigan, we have to say this theory warrants a little more skepticism. Still, if we've learned anything from our look into the subject, it's that the treasure could be almost anywhere. But what if it's nowhere? As in, what if the legend of this Confederate gold has only grown so large because it's covering up the truth? The treasure was lost long ago. Coming up, we'll cover that very idea in our next theory. Now back to the story. In 1865, a cache of Confederate treasure was lost amidst the chaos at the end of the Civil War. The location of the treasure has been theorized to be everywhere from buried in Georgia to the bottom of Lake Michigan. Stories of missing treasure tend to stick with us because there's always a chance someone could still find it, if it still exists. Our third and most anticlimactic theory is that there is no treasure. What remained of the Confederate treasury was quickly spent away in the weeks and months following the war, and only legends and fictionalized accounts have kept the myth of the Confederate gold alive for this long. The challenge of locating the treasure has always been wrapped up in the value of the treasure that was taken from Richmond in 1865. The most thorough sources put the number at around 500,000 in gold and precious metals, though there long has been speculation that the real value of the treasure was much higher. The Union government actually helped perpetuate this rumor. Northern leaders likely hadn't realized how dire the financial situation of the Confederacy was in 1865. As Union forces began capturing more and more Confederate strongholds, the Union leadership started to put the word out about the missing funds from the Confederate Treasury. The Union soldiers were not finding much gold when they captured fortresses, and they didn't believe that was all there was. It seemed to them that the Confederacy was hiding large sums of money. The real value of the Confederate Treasury was likely on the smaller side. For all the reasons we've mentioned, the Confederacy had been hemorrhaging money in its efforts to raise an army strong enough to fight off the North. If we accept that the Confederate leadership really was only carrying 500,000 in personal assets when they fled Richmond in April of 1865, it actually becomes a little simpler to figure out what happened. Right from the start, there's a recorded loss. We know that Jefferson Davis fled with his party and the treasure on April 2nd, 1865. However, on April 6th, 
a man named Walter Philbrook made a tally of the treasure and came up nearly $200,000 short. The reason for the discrepancy was due to 50 barrels of Mexican silver coins valued at $4,000 apiece. These barrels seemed to have vanished at some point between April 2nd, when the Treasury left Richmond, and the April 6th tally. It's unknown why the barrels were separated from the rest of the treasure, and speculation exists to this day that the silver is buried somewhere in Danville, Virginia, where Philbrook made the tally. It's also possible that the silver was tallied in Richmond, but never made it onto the initial train out of town. Historians generally agree that the silver was intended to pay the soldiers in General Lee's army, which at that time had been set to catch up with Davis and the rest of the Confederate leaders. It could have been left behind in Danville for Lee to recover on his march. If so, the silver would have likely been confiscated by Union troops. So already, the value of the Confederate treasure is down from 500000 to just over 300000 in four days. As the fall of the Confederacy became more and more evident, soldiers in the Confederate Army were left wondering what they were still fighting for. To that end, it was vital that the Confederate leadership keep their men paid to avoid a mutiny. On April 7th, as the convoy passed through North Carolina, there's a record of a $39,000 payment to one General Johnson and his men. This battalion had not surrendered and would likely be needed to blockade any Union forces pursuing Davis. It was not money well spent. Johnson and his men surrendered just over two weeks later. So now, of that original sum of 500,000, Davis had less than 300,000. And we've only covered the major deductions. The Treasury money would have been called upon to pay for food and transportation for the entire group as it continued its journey south. It took nearly a month for the party to reach its destination, Washington, Georgia. There, the Confederate leadership was faced with the growing problem of troop dissatisfaction. The men had been marching for weeks, and to many of them, the writing was on the wall. They knew they would not be paid if the remainder of the Treasury money was captured by Union forces. John Breckinridge, the Confederate Secretary of War, had no choice but to pay each of the men $26 for a total cost of over $100,000. When Jefferson Davis fled Washington, he was reportedly given $35,000 in gold to both support himself and, if the chance came, oversee a resurgent Confederacy. By this point, the Confederacy had been dissolved and it was left to the cabinet to disperse the remainder of the treasure. After payments to some of the cabinet members and additional expenses, the Confederate treasure would have amounted to less than $100,000. The rate at which the Confederate treasury dwindled after Jefferson Davis fled Richmond is concerning and certainly raises the possibility that the rest of the money was spent as well. The final piece of the story that confirms this particular theory concerns one James A. Semple. According to one account, Captain Macasia Clark was the last man to be made responsible for the Confederate Treasury before it was captured by the Union Army. It was Clark who oversaw the dispersal of what remained of the treasure. When all the expenses were paid, Clark was left with a surplus of $86,000. He presented this to Navy Lieutenant James Semple. Clark ordered Semple to hide the money and smuggle it south to Savannah. 
From there, Clark had made arrangements for the gold to be shipped to England, where it would be deposited in a bank account and await the day that the Confederacy would rise again. Semple was partnered with another officer, Edward Tidball. The two men didn't even make it halfway to Savannah. In the city of Augusta, just 50 miles from where they set off, Semple and Tidball met up with another man, William Howell. We don't know why, but it was here that Semple chose to abandon the mission. Perhaps by then it was so clear that the Confederacy had been defeated and would never rise again that Semple and Tidball didn't see the point in sending some perfectly useful gold off to rot in some English bank for eternity. Tidball and Howell both used their cuts to start new lives for themselves and live out their days in comfort. But Semple's actions warrant further investigation. Semple laid low for the next few months. He was definitely wanted by Union authorities, who by then knew he had made off with some of the Treasury money. Additionally, it was likely he was also being hunted by ex-Confederate bounty hunters after Clark learned that the money had never made it to England. When Semple showed up back on the radar in 1866, he had hatched a plan to potentially save the South. Semple aimed to use his gold to push the United States into a war with Britain. He figured that the North would need the help of the Southern states in the event of such a war, and thus the Northern forces would be forced to concede some of the harsher conditions of Reconstruction. Semple became involved with the Fenians, a precursor to the Irish Republican Army. The Fenians aimed to push the British out of Ireland and had set up bases in the United States where they could plan without fear of being captured. Semple knew that the British government was not happy that the American government was doing little to stop the Fenians from scheming against them. The fact that the U.S. had just concluded a civil war and was currently in the slow, painful process of rebuilding itself as a nation didn't really register with the British. Semple's plan was to use his gold to fund the Fenian movements, raising awareness across America and gaining followers. If he could get enough Americans to support Irish liberation, then perhaps, eventually, Britain would declare war on America. Then his master plan would go into effect. This plan didn't work. What a shock. Semple gave up on the Fenian plot after he had invested most of his gold. He died in 1883 with little to his name. The Semple story seems to confirm what became of the last of the Confederate treasure. While, as we've stated, it's certainly possible that there was more treasure that left Richmond, and that additional treasure did make its way to Michigan, or Georgia, or wherever, it really seems most likely that the majority of the Confederate treasury was spent on efforts to keep the Confederacy itself alive. While we still can't account for the $180,000 worth of Richmond bank money stolen from Union troops, it seems just as likely that the gold was quietly spent until there was nothing left. The final question then is that given all we know about what really became of the Confederate treasure, why is there still so much speculation that it's still out there? The obvious answer is the missing $180,000 that was stolen by robbers and never recovered. Furthermore, there was so much gold being moved around in this time that it has always been impossible to state how much there was, meaning no matter how much is accounted for, there can always be more. 
The potential existence of the treasure carries with it a cultural importance. It's not controversial to state that many who lived in the southern United States following the Civil War considered themselves to be a part of the Confederate States of America, even after the Confederate States were retaken by the Union. The legend of the treasure shows a cultural longing, a fantasy of some lost amount of gold that might have been used to give rise to a new Confederacy. Even as the Civil War became a memory, the legend of the treasure persisted. This was enhanced by the gold's prevalence in popular culture. It has appeared in comic books, Western films, including The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and the Clive Cussler novel, Sahara, which was adapted into a film of the same name. Why such a cultural obsession? Perhaps it has something to do with the promise of sudden riches. The reality of treasure hunting is that you rarely get to keep all of what you find. Most nations, including the United States, have laws governing what can and can't be kept by the finder. Even if you do find treasure, the country of origin for that treasure can claim part or most of it as historical property. But Confederate treasure is different. There is no Confederate government in existence, and thus there is no one to lay claim to any Confederate gold that might be found. It makes sense. And the sheer number of questions about the treasure's whereabouts ensure that people will still continue to search for it for some time. However, we believe that the third theory is the most valid. The Confederate treasury was already paltry when Jefferson Davis fled Richmond. It seems most likely that he spent what he needed to just keep the Confederate government alive, and what was left was squandered by James Semple. It's not the most exciting conclusion, but then again, it's better than scouring the bottom of a lake for treasure that simply isn't there. Thanks again for tuning into Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>